Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, you're listening to The Naked Scientists, the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. I'm Katie Haler. And I'm Phil Sansom. And this week, pull up a chair, a drink, and get your pens and paper at the ready, because it's time for The Naked Scientists' Science Pub Quiz. That's right. It's a Q&A show with a difference tonight, as you'll be answering the questions. Us Naked Scientists love a pub quiz, so we thought we'd put your brains to the test instead this week. Katie and I are going to be your quiz masters. Coming up are three rounds, so get your thinking caps on. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. But don't worry, because playing alongside you down the line are animal behaviour scientist Eleanor Drinkwater. Hello. Eleanor, can you hear us? Yes, yes, I can. Then we've got physiologist Sam Virtue. Hello, Sam. Hi, Phil. Also on the line is climate scientist Ella Gilbert. Hello. And plant and pollinator researcher Hamish Symington. Hi, Hamish. Hey there, how are you doing? Now, Eleanor, you've been on the show a fair few times before, but are you a regular pub quizzer? I am enthusiastic, but terrible, I'm afraid. Um, but mostly <laughs> enthusiastic. <laughs> what can you bring to the table, though? What's your What's your expertise? Tell us about what you're interested in. I must admit that I'm a bit of a bug nerd. So so if you have any questions about invertebrates or insects or, or preferably insect personality, then, then I'm really your go-to. Eleanor, does that come up much in pub quizzes? Unfortunately not. I'm still waiting for my moment. Um, <laughs> but not yet. <laughs> particular area of interest when it comes to bugs? I study woodlice in particular. I'm interested how different woodlice have different personalities and that affects how they interact and and how the different groups of woodlice interact. What kind of personalities do woodlice have? Oh my goodness, so many types of personalities. They have fabulous personalities. Um, You get some which are shy and some which are bold and explorative, some of which you kind of like company, others of which don't like company. So next time you see a woodlice, I hope that that everybody has a a greater appreciation for for their brilliant personalities. Let's move over to Sam. Uh, How do you tend to do when it comes to a pub quiz? Well, I haven't actually had a chance to do them for a long time as I moved out to the countryside, but I used to do all right at pub quiz. 
Fortunately, my specialist uh, round was usually the sport, which I'm not sure how much of that's going to be on today's show. You'll find this is the rare pub quiz that doesn't have any sporting questions. Do you not have a village local that does a quiz? It's a nice idea, but sadly, I also have two small children. So finding time to disappear (laughs) off for several hours of an evening uh, is rather gone now. Tell me, what area of science have you got up your sleeve today? Well, so I'm an animal physiologist, so if you have any questions about why um, mice get fat, I might be quite good at those. But otherwise, my more sort of general area is on diabetes and obesity. Funnily enough, we do have two whole rounds of questions on how mice get fat. Would you believe it? It's going to be really embarrassing when I get everything wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move over to Ella. Ella, welcome to the programme. What's your science area? I'm a climate scientist, but I also work at the British Antarctic Survey, so I'm interested in anything polar, so think cold thoughts. Are we talking polar wildlife, polar atmosphere? What's, what's your area? Uh, I've got my head in the clouds mostly, so uh, I'm an atmospheric physicist, do things like climate modelling, so I'm interested in wind, weather, clouds, a lot of clouds, I'm going to be honest, and anything kind of climate-related. Do you have a favourite pub quiz team name? Bearing in mind we are pre pre watershed. Some of those team uh, names are a bit. You some know. of them are a bit a bit cheeky. Do, do you have a favourite sciencey one? Generally, I just go for the ruder the better, which I feel like may not be that appropriate, and no. always have, to have a terrible pun. Seriously, bro. Seriously. Oh, that's that's really good. We are such a fan of uh, pun here on The Naked Scientist. Well, that's a real I groaner. can always provide uh, banter, puns and terrible dad jokes. <laughs> you can count on me. Tell us a bit more about what you're researching at the moment. I'm looking at an ice shelf called Larsen Sea. Uh, it's, it's on the Antarctic Peninsula and it's the little bit that sticks out. And I'm interested in what's making it melt. Do we know? Oh, that would be a spoiler. You'd have to like read my research to find ah, that out. Ah, okay. Any any snippets? Tantalizing. Snippets. Is it? Snippet. Can I can I put in a guess? Is global warming helping? Nail on the I'm, head. I'm good at pub quizzes. Phil, you're not allowed to win the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> That's cheating. Uh, let's move on, shall we? Hamish, where Hello. are you? Hello. What's your particular research bag? So I am looking at what it is that bees like about flowers to try to make flowers better at being pollinated um, under the umbrella of crop security. Oh, I see. So foodstuffs, right? Foodstuff, exactly. Yeah. I'm uh, in particular, I'm looking at strawberries, or at least I was before uh, before lockdown. Students aren't allowed back at the university at the moment. So uh, all of my plants went to the bin. Oh, no, that's such a shame. Because is it? It's kind of getting to strawberry season, is it? May, June? Yes. Ideally, now at this time, I would have a polytunnel in a botanic garden with um, several hundred strawberry plants in it, which I could measure the hell out of. Uh, but sadly, uh, I'm not allowed that, so uh, I can't be doing my research. So when I get back, I'll be able to do some more stuff to do with uh, bees and pollination in the lab. Hamish, is this figuring out what is it that bees like the most when it comes to something like pollinating strawberries? Yeah, that's the idea. We're going to have several billion more people in the world over the next few decades. Um, and there is a general decline in insects around the world. We rely on pollination for about 75% of, um, of the crops that we grow. So those two things together, don't really, they don't really fit. So if we can try to make flowers better at being pollinated, so first of all, more attractive to insects, but also more efficient at being pollinated when those insects get there, 
then we can make better use of the insects which which already exist to help make our food. Now that's not the only thing you do. You're also you're also quite a quizzical person, right? Mm. Am I right that you make crosswords? Yes, I I set cryptic crosswords as well uh, under the pseudonym of Soup. That's a hard hard thing to do, at least in my book. I promise, full disclosure, Um, we haven't recruited Hamish to do a cryptic crossword for you guys. You are the contestants, so he's he's not um, one up already. Uh, yeah, I, I find setting them quite fun. Um, I, I often find it easier than solving them because at least I already know the answers. Oh, right. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Phil, you look like you're going to say something. No, no. I've, I've always wanted to do cryptic crosswords, but I've never had the skill set that it take, that you have to build up to actually start answering the questions. So I'm, I'm very, very impressed. If only you had an enormous amount of time in which you weren't <laughs> able to do any work or something. Then. Now's the time, huh? Yeah, exactly. So climate, pollinators, animal communication, the way the body works. Welcome, everyone. We've got Ella, Sam, Hamish and Eleanor. In terms of teams, we're going we're gonna to put you against each other, basically. We're going to have Ella and Sam. You're on team one. And then team two is Eleanor and Hamish. Phil is going to keep the scores. You ready, Phil? You've got your pen and paper? I'm so ready. OK, let's crack on with it then. Round one. Now, this would usually be a picture round in many a pub quiz, but since visuals aren't super conducive um, to radio, for obvious reasons, we're going to tell you about these people instead. So this is your Who Am I Famous Scientists round. Okay, you ready? Just to explain how the scoring is going to work, we'll give you three clues. If you can get the right answer after clue one, you get two points. If you get the answer after clue two, you get one point. And if you need all three, but you do get it right, you only get half a point. And if you get the answer wrong or you really don't know, we're going to throw it over to the other team. Does everybody understand? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Let's crack on with the first question. Ella and Sam, team one. Clue one. I studied at Newnham College here in Cambridge and graduated in 1941. After graduating, I went to work at the British Coal Utilisation Research Association and studied the porosity of coal, which became the basis of my PhD. Okay, well, the first thing we can work out is it's almost certainly got to be a woman if she was studying at Newnham College in 1940. Do you have any ideas, Ella, about who may be famous for studying coal? (laughs) I'm going to go with... No, not a sausage. Okay, we'll give you clue two, shall we? I think we're going to need it. (laughs) The late 1940s, I worked at the State Chemical Laboratory in Paris, where I perfected my X-ray crystallography skills. Any the wiser? Oh, um... Sounds like some cogsworthy turn in there. DNA, is it, could it be Rosalind Franklin, do you reckon, Ella? Oh, yes, it could be, but I am really notoriously bad with names. Okay, yeah, I'm just having a horrible feeling it's the wrong name, but given I think it's right and it's a female X-ray crystallographer who'd be the right age for the discovery of DNA, we'll go with that then. Hey. Well done. Congratulations. So, Phil, that's... claim no credit. <laughs> that's one point, Zero. isn't it, Phil? One point to Ellen and Sam, well done. Excellent. Okay, over to team two. Eleanor and Hamish, who am I? Here's your clue number one. 
I have a programming language named after me. All right, what do you think?、Um, I'm guessing these. I'm guessing these are people rather than animals.、Uh, these are indeed people. Damn it!、So、not pi- not mean- Python then. <laughs> that, that would have been a good, good, good guess. I shouldn't have given you that hint, but yes, it's a person, not an animal, and they've got a programming language named after them. I should know this, given I was a software developer for about ten years. So I'm racking my brains at the list of programming languages whose names aren't thing, single letters like R or C or things like that. Shall I give you clue、um, two? Put you out of your misery. Wait, hang on, I, I have I have one potential suggestion, which is Fortran, but I can't remember if that's an acronym. Eleanor, it's named after someone. Linux. That sounds like it could be someone's name, couldn't it? No, that was Linus Torvald invented that one. So that. Oh. I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you clue two to move things along. <laughs> Go for Sorry. it. Sorry. <laughs> so, who am I? My father was the poet Lord Byron, and it's because of him I had an unusually good education for a woman at the time. What do we think? Oh, oh, it's um, it's Ada Lovelace. Is that your final answer? Um, Ada Lovelace is Byron's daughter. Hey! Very well done. That's, That's a point、so cool. to you, Eleanor and Hamish. And so we're actually exactly even as we move into our next question. Back to Team One, Eleanor and Sam. Here's your guest question for this round. Hello, the Naked Scientists.、Uh, I'm Jack. I'm the librarian at the Whipple Library, which is the library for history and philosophy of science at the University of Cambridge. Clue number one. I was, along with Carolyn Herschel, jointly the first female member of the Royal Astronomical Society. I was a mathematician, geographer, and astronomer. Any ideas, Ella? Oh my God, my my knowledge of famous people is really, really showing to be very lacking here. I have no okay. idea.、I'm、okay, okay, we're going to give you clue two. Ready? Yeah. Clue number two. I wrote the Mechanism of the Heavens, which was published in eighteen thirty-one, and I appear on a Royal Bank of Scotland ten-pound note. I've got no clue. Right, I'm giving you clue three. <laughs> okay, here's、Please、clue three.、Help. <laughs> uh, clue number three. My namesake, Oxford College, has Margaret Thatcher, Indra Gandhi, Dorothy Hodgkin, and Iris Murdoch as alumni. Any the wiser? Otherwise, we're going to throw it over to the other team.、Uh, no, no, no. I know, like Wadden. That's about well, it. We'll go with that then. <laughs> is that your? Is that your answer? <laughs> I think it's going to have to be. That's、yeah. your answer. Okay.、Oh. I'm afraid not.、Um, team two, do you have any thoughts? Do you want to guess? Okay, I'll put you out of your misery. The answer was Mary Somerville. So no、oh. points there, Phil.、Uh, over to team two. Well, nice try, guys. This is for team two, Eleanor and Hamish. Here's your question from Jack. Clue number one. I'm Italian. Was born in 1625 and became a French citizen, and changed my first name after being invited to work in Paris by King Louis XIV of France. So Italian became French. Any ideas? Not without、oh. the subject area. I mean, it's probably going to be physics or astronomy or something like that because just a, yeah. I know that Leonardo da Vinci spent a lot of time in in France. I don't know if he took up citizenship though. Would you、mm, like to make that as your guess? That. Yes, maybe. Is there a second I, I, clue? There is a second. Would you like to move on? Second clue. Yeah, let's get a second clue. All right, clue number two. I helped to set up the Paris Observatory, where my son and grandson would also have leading roles, and where I discovered four moons of Saturn: Iapetus, Rhea, Tethys, and Dione. There we go. You've got your subject area, Eleanor and Hamish. 
Moons of Saturn. I was revising Moons of Jupiter just before the quiz, just in case. But oh um, wow, <laughs> that's well unfortunate. Any guesses? I can't remember who did discover the Moons of Saturn. Da Vinci, be a good shout, maybe given the. Uh, would you like to guess Da Vinci? I'm going to have to should press we you. A, should we give? Let's give it a go. All right. Yeah. No! Sorry, Hamish, sorry. What a good guess. And in fact, I might have thought it too, but no, the answer is Giovanni Cassini. Um, and your third clue would have been that he was uh, had a, a namesake, which is a probe getting sent to Saturn. That might have given it away. But I would have got that one. Nice try. We're still one each to both teams. So everything to play for as we go into the next part. Okay, team one. There's an audio hint for this question, but it's only on clue three. So... Clue one. I'm Scottish-born, but invented my most important creation in North America. Pretty hard for a first clue, I think. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell? He's Scottish? That was very impressive. Unbelievable. Who's back in the game? How, how did you get that, Ella? I just know he's Scottish, and I know that he did the Telegraph in the States. Team two, Eleanor and Hamish, time to step up to the plate. Good luck with this one. (laughs) All right, clue number one. I left school at 18 in 1952, and I'm one of very few people to have been awarded a PhD by the University of Cambridge without having a bachelor's degree first. Who am I? I'm going to move on because we're we're a little pressed for time. So here's clue number two. Although I'm from the UK, I did my fieldwork and research on a specific species in Africa. Um, can we get third clue, maybe? Yeah, I think that's third a lot clue. of species in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, I observed that chimpanzees are not vegetarian and, in fact, sometimes eat smaller monkeys. Oh, I feel like I should know this one. Um, it's, I, I feel like it's Diane Fossey, but she... Oh, I was going to say the only chimpanzee person I know is Jane Goodall. Yes, and it'll be her. Excellent. Well done. All mm. right, that's round one done. Thanks very much, everyone. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. Today, we're getting stuck into a Naked Scientist science pub quiz, so do join in at home. How did you do in round one? Let us know. Tweet at Naked Scientist. And playing along down the line are climate scientist Ella Gilbert from the British Antarctic Survey, bees and plants buff Hamish Symington from Cambridge University, metabolism maestro Sam Virtue, also from Cambridge University, and animal behaviour expert Eleanor Drinkwater. Right, Phil, what are the scores on the doors? As we enter round two, it's three points to team one, that's Ella and Sam, against two points to Team 2, Eleanor and Hamish. But before we go into round two, forum user Sifram, that's nakedscientist.com slash forum, sent us in this question. I live on a major air ridge and am used to seeing the sky covered in contrails. But at the moment, it is strangely clear. We are experiencing a very dry spring with scarcely a drop of rain all month. 
and none promised until May. Is there any correlation? So the question, is there any correlation between a lack of rain and a lack of contrails? Luckily, we have just the person to answer this question, so Ella tackled this one for us. As you say, it's been unusually dry and mild in the UK in recent weeks. After a warm January and the wettest February on record, March temperatures were distinctly average, although drier and sunnier than usual. However, the Met Office has announced that April 2020 is provisionally thought to have been the sunniest we've seen since records of total sunshine hours began in 1929. This was particularly true for the southeast. For instance, Cambridge got 64% more sunshine than is usual for April. However, this lovely weather was actually a result of persistent high pressure systems over the UK, which typically lead to fine settled conditions. Very frustrating for everyone stuck indoors, of course. You're right to point out a link between contrails and climate, though. A study in the journal Science suggests that contrail cirrus has warmed the planet more than all of the CO2 emitted since commercial aviation began. The line-shaped cirrus clouds that form behind aircraft are responsible for warming the atmosphere, especially at the altitudes and latitudes where air traffic is most concentrated, such as Europe and North America. Although their effect on surface temperatures and precipitation is still unclear, one study published in the leading journal Nature suggests that contrail cirrus reduces natural cloudiness, which may impact temperatures and precipitation at the surface. So, although there is a link between contrails and climate, the reduction in air traffic is likely not responsible for bringing the lovely weather we've been having, and if anything, would probably be expected to have the opposite effect. Thank you, Ella. And you'll be hearing a few more of our contestants, maybe a couple, as they take on more listener questions a little bit later. It was really poetic, actually, because Ella sent me this answer in advance and I was listening a few days ago when she first sent it. And I was listening, looking out the window and just as she came to the bit about um, bad weather, the heavens opened and I could just hear thunder. In fact, I think I was talking to Phil at the time and you could just hear the crackle from out of my window. That's quite something. It was, <laughs> it was um, yeah, it was quite fitting. That's really nice. Anyway... Time for round two, I think. Yes, uh, and this round is called The Sky Above. So, contestants, it's going to be one point per correct answer. We're going to start with Team 1. Ella and Sam, get ready. Here's her question. Which constellation is home to Polaris, the North Star, the all-important navigation star? What do you think? Is it, uh, is it near Ursa Minor? I always remember it's near the Big Dipper and then along a bit. <laughs> Straight out the gate. We love to see that kind of performance. Well done, Ella. It is indeed Ursa Minor. All right, on to team two. This question is taken from the Astronaut Selection Test Book by Tim Peake and the European Space Agency. So get ready to think like an astronaut. This is the question. Another crew member is exercising on the cycle machine when you're scheduled to be using the equipment. Do you, A, go for a run on the treadmill instead? B, speak with mission control to reschedule your activities? C, interrupt the other crew member's exercise session to discuss the matter. Or D, just get on with something else until the cycle machine is free. What do you you think? think My instinct would be B, because everything on a space station is so tightly controlled that you need to be doing your exercise. And they might be doing their exercise for a good reason. What do you reckon? Mm. I think for me it would depend how grumpy I was feeling at the time, but I think your answer is probably the best one. 
<laughs> so you're going with B, yeah? B, speed condition yeah. control. No. I'm afraid not. I see see where you're going and you definitely get credit for, for trying because you were kind of near the right answer. But the right answer was C, interrupt the other crew members' exercise to discuss the matter. And exactly for the reason you say, Hamish, exercise is super important in space and daily activities are coordinated very carefully. And your medical team back on the ground have planned for you to do exercise at particular times. So you didn't get the point, but... I feel bad because you kind of were on the right lines. Yeah, I think half a point for that. What do you think? Uh, you're the you're keeping the score. All right, half a point would be generous. <laughs> I love that question. Well, let's go back to team one. That's Ella and Sam. You've got a guest question from a celebrity. It's professor of planetary geosciences at the Open University and friend of the show, David Rothery. Well, at the moment, we're all rather concerned by something called a coronavirus, but where out in space? Would you not find something called a corona? Is it A, surrounding the sun? Is it B, among the clouds of Jupiter? Is it C, on the surface of Venus? Or is it D, a constellation of stars? Three of those things have corona something, one doesn't. What do you think? Do you know Ella or should we guess? The sun has a corona. Yeah. Um, I assume other stars have a corona. I reckon the clouds of Jupiter probably do, so should we give Venus a crack? Let's go for it. All right, Venus. Well, the answer is B. There's nothing called a corona in the clouds of Jupiter. Um... The corona is the sun's uh, really hot outer atmosphere, which you can see during a total solar eclipse. Uh, there are features on the surface of Venus, which we call uh, a corona. Uh, these are large, round features, which might be caused by upwelling or downwelling of the crust. We don't really know. And there are actually two constellations called corona. There's corona borealis in the northern sky and corona australis in the southern sky, they're fairly unremarkable, uh, vaguely uh, ring-like uh, arrangements of stars called corona. Well done, guys. That was a tough one. So team two, Eleanor and Hamish, here's your question from David. Out in space, what do the following have in common? Juliet, Miranda, Titania and Margaret. Miranda Ooh. and Titania are moons. Um, I mean, they're all Shakespeare characters, but I'm guessing that's not a... Yeah, they're all moons of something. Of something, okay. huh? Oh, do we have to be specific about what they're moons? I think, I think a, moon, a moon angle is, is a good one. I, the answer I, is, it, they're all moons of Neptune. the planet Uranus. Ah. The one that oh. sounds rather unexotic and mundane. Margaret is a... Uh, Servant in the play Much Ado About Nothing. Juliet's from Romeo and Juliet. You probably get that. Sorry, not quite. So, Phil, they didn't get the point, right? No, that's that leaves us at one point to team one and half a point this round to team two. No halves for that one. <laughs> Although, well done for getting there. They're all Shakespeare characters. I thought that was pretty good. But let's move back to team one. Ella and Sam, here's a question. Which of the following bird songs is native to the UK. We're going to play three. Ready? Here's A. (laughs) 
Here's B. And here, coming up, is C. What do you think, guys? Any aspiring bird watchers among Sam or Ella?、Uh, I feel like I've heard B in a wood somewhere, but then again, I am a Londoner born and bred, so I'm really not the best person to ask about wildlife. We're going to need an well, answer. I was thinking B as well, so we'll go with that. Yes, well done. Can you?、Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. We're going to throw this to both teams, so get ready to answer as quickly as you can. What bird is it? Stunned silence.、Oh. Anyone? <laughs> I want to guess a robin,、uh, but I'm not entirely sure. It's quite hard to tell. Okay, it's not a robin. Team one? No. No, no idea. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, you got it right anyway. It was a blackbird, but still well done for getting it. It was indeed B. A was、uh, some parrots. They were in Australia. And、uh, C was some birds called cacique. Which is a, a very、uh, fun tropical bird. Team two. What phenomenon is named after the Roman goddess of dawn and the Greek name for north wind? I know this one. Ooh, that's good because I have no clue. <laughs> It's the Aurora Borealis.、Hmm. Correct. That was a very confident answer. Phil. What are the scores on the doors at the end of that round? Well, as we leave round two behind, we wave a fond farewell. We find that team one have got two points out of that, and team two have got one and a half, which means that team one have cemented their lead by an extra half point. Oh, okay. So there is a bit of a difference, but everything could change in round three.、So. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a close one. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Today we're indulging in a science pub quiz, and you can join in at home. If you're playing along and you want to share how you're doing, we're at Naked Scientists. We've got four willing victims, I mean, contestants, and friends of the show playing along down the line. We've got climate scientist Ella, animal behaviour scientist Eleanor, plant and pollinator researcher Hamish, and physiologist Sam. Contestants, let's just check in quickly. How are we doing?、Uh, Ella, any, any questions stumped you so far, particularly? I'm terrible with famous people, evidently. There were some. All of the first round. Some tough older scientists there. No, no. I, I thought that was very impressive that you got two out of the three questions. You got the answer. Well, I can't claim credit for at least one of those. <laughs> It's a team effort. <laughs> Sam, how do you think you're doing? All right. I mean,、yeah. I guess it's quite striking how little you find out you know when you. Start getting asked general knowledge questions, but you know, <laughs> well, we're doing okay. Buckle up because we've got round three in a minute. But we ended round two with a question about birds. So let's turn now to the bees. Listener Paul got in touch on the forum and he says, I'm sure we've all heard that bees die after they sting you. Is this true? If it is, do they know this? And why do they die? 
Hmm. Well, we asked Hamish to get busy answering this one for us earlier in the week. This question is highly relevant to me because last Sunday I went to check on my honeybees and got eight stings from a particularly vicious hive. Ow! As the bees reminded me, they sting to protect their colony from attack. They don't just sting people, they'll go for any invader, be that a beekeeper, a mouse, a woodpecker, bees from other colonies who are trying to rob their honey, wasps, hornets and more. Honeybee workers have stings which are actually made from three separate pieces, a central channel down which the venom flows and a barbed part on either side. When they sting another insect, the sting can go in and out pretty smoothly between the segments of the exoskeleton. But when they sting an animal with thicker skin, like me, the barbed parts catch on the thick skin and actually work as a ratchet to drive the stinger in further. The force needed to pull those barbs out of the animal's skin is more than the force needed to pull the sting out of the bee. So when the bee flies away, it leaves the stinger. Also left behind is a little bag of venom, which keeps pulsating to inject even more after it's been ripped out of the bee's body. For a bee, stinging is instinctual. It's what it does when it's faced with a threat, a bit like our own fight-or-flight response. When the sting is ripped out, it also releases alarm pheromones, which attract other bees and encourage them to sting as well. This is why once I've been stung once when looking at my bees, I'm often stung many more times soon after. But death after stinging is just honeybees. Almost all stinging insects have smooth stingers and don't rip themselves apart when they sting, so the bumblebees and wasps you see in the garden can sting repeatedly. Interestingly, queen honeybee stingers are also much smoother than worker stingers, and queens can sting humans multiple times without dying. In practice, they tend to only sting other bees, particularly when they're engaged in a queen fight, which can happen when new queens are raised by the colony. The only time I've heard of a queen stinging a beekeeper is when he'd been handling many other queens, so perhaps she thought he was a bee. As to the question of whether the bees know that they're going to die, the study of the concept of death within animals is a really interesting and hard-to-study aspect of animal psychology. Some scientists argue that bees are conscious, some that they simply follow programmed behaviours during their life. After all, they have very simple brains with only about a million neurons in less than a cubic millimetre of brain compared to our 80-odd billion neurons. They can certainly be trained, it's pretty easy and I do that regularly in the lab, but to the best of our knowledge they don't have an understanding of their impending death if they sting. It's just what they do to defend their colony from marauding beasts like me, who want to steal their honey. Thanks so much Hamish for clearing that one up. I was actually stung, will you believe it Phil, in the tongue once by a wasp? What were you doing? It was horrendous. um, It was a really hot day and I had a fizzy drink can. And I put it down and then I picked it up and in between those times the wasp must have crawled into the can and it stung me in the, like, it went into my tongue. Oh. It was horrendous, but it was probably worse for the wasp because I think I squashed it when I removed it. Hamish, am I allowed to hate wasps or is that a bit short-sighted? I mean, you are allowed to hate them because they sting and stings hurt. But wasps are actually fantastically useful. Um, they, they are crucial for pollination. They, there are, I think, something like 70-odd thousand different species of wasp. Only some of them sting. They mostly do things like eating insects and all sorts of other things which contribute to ecosystem services. So just because it's a, a nasty animal which wants to steal your jam sandwich or, or something like that, they're not all bad. So wasps can be lovely. Have you ever actually met any lovely ones? I did, but I failed to ask its name, so we never met again. Eleanor, do wasps have any redeeming features in terms of how they talk to other wasps? 
wasps are wonderful creatures that everybody should love. Everybody should should love their wasps. Oh, um, crikey. And- okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a big wasp fan. But what, one of the really cool things about wasps is the fact that some species of wasps, it's been found that they can show individual facial recognition of other wasps. So they can actually tell each other apart depending on the patterns on their faces. So, yeah, so I think, you know, perhaps we've got more in common with wasps than we might like to admit sometimes. That's incredible. Oh, hang on a minute. Does that mean they can tell between me and someone else <laughs> and get my ice cream and not someone else's? I do not know. That is a really good question. I think someone needs to fund that research. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but you're in the pro-wasp camp. Would that be fair? Definitely. Definitely the pro-wasp camp. (laughs) All right. I think I might rethink my position, Phil. (laughs) Uh, We've got a quick social media shout out. It's from none other than David Rothery himself who knew it was a blackbird. So if only he was here. Oh, well done, David. And a a quick check-in because Team 2, we didn't get to you. That's Eleanor and Hamish. Eleanor, how are you feeling? Excellent. Hamish? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to turn that around into uh, the final round, which is going to be Extreme Scales. So now, as we go in, the scores on the doors are five points to Team 1 and three and a half points to Team 2. Okay, so it's still all to play for. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, this should be a really dramatic round. All right. things considered. Okay, go for it. Here we go. Team one, Ella and Sam, here's a question for you. Which is the rainiest continent? What do you think? I reckon rainiest. it's going to be South America. Because yep, of rainiest. The rainforest. Oh, interesting. I was going to say because you get the maritime continent being very wet. I mean, it's got to have some tropics in it, right? Yeah. What's your answer? Are we I'm going happy South to go America, South Ella? America if you like. Well done. Uh, we weren't trying to trick you. It is home to the Amazon rainforest. So the clue's in the name. Very well done. That's a point to you. Excellent work. Now, team two, so that's Hamish and Eleanor. To make things fair, since we gave the climate person a weather question, yours is a multiple choice <laughs> question, all right? So according to the Guinness Book of Records, where in the world has the highest natural temperature been recorded? So I'm not talking about like an oven or something. Natural temperature. Is it A, Death Valley, California? B, El Azizia, Libya, or C, Udnadatta, South Australia? Ooh, what do you think, Hamish? Uh, It always used to be Death Valley, but I can't remember if they've got another one since. Is that your answer? (laughs) I know it was that at one point. Death Valley sounds like a good shout. That sounds kind of inhospitable. Go for it. Congratulations, you were right on the money. According to the Guinness World Records, it was in Libya until 2012 with 58 Celsius, but that recording was since disqualified by the World Meteorological Association, and now the US holds the record at 56.7. The town of Udnadatta in South Australia holds the record for hottest place in Australia, though, recorded at 50.7 Celsius in 1960. So much drama in the hottest place in the world uh, uh, debate. My God, I love it. Well, back to team one. Uh, here's your next guest question. I'm Dr. Imen Boulel Bougdira, and I'm a cell biologist at the University of Cambridge. My question for you all is, which of these cellular organelles are present in animal cells, but not plant cells? A, mitochondria, B, vacuole, C, centriole, D, nucleus. Okay, which one don't plants have? Sam or Ella, what, what do you think? 
Oh, this is taking me back to GCSE biology. <laughs> oh, no, I should know this. I th- what do you think, I mean, Sam? I would go with Centriol because, I mean, I know that they've got my, all got mitochondria. They've all got nucleus. So it's either a toss-up between vacuole and Centriol. Sorry, was it present in plants and not mammals? Sorry, the, the other way around. Present in animals but not plants. Uh, I would say Centriol. Very well done. Yes, indeed, centriole. They're part of this structure that plays this role in cell division and organising how things get moved around inside a cell. Excellent stuff. Team two. Which of the following elements is not found in the human body? And you've got multiple choice here. So is it A, gadolinium, B, chromium, or C, actinium? What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> um, I have no idea. Do you know Hamish? I think chromium's toxic. He said vaguely. Um, I don't know what either of the other ones do. <laughs> Let's go for chromium. Chromium. Oh. Oh. So there's one in three chance. It's still not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid you didn't get the point there. The answer was actinium. <laughs> Actinium doesn't appear to have any role in living things. In fact, it's extracted from uranium cores and isn't actually found outside nuclear labs. It's radioactive, so I should have probably got that one. All right, uh, team one, this is for you. Which of the following was the longest dinosaur? A, Argentinosaurus, B, Tyrannosaurus rex, and C, Onanosaurus. I'm sure you're big fans of all of those dinosaurs, but which was the longest? Ellen Sam. When you say longest, you mean tip to toe? Yep. Uh-huh. Well, it's not T-Rex. Sorry, we mean top of the head to the top of the tail, I think. So, yeah, I reckon it's a toss-up between the first and the last, Ella. Do you want to guess? What's your gut telling you? Is it Trick and are the other two really small? Could oh. be. You've got Argentinosaurus is A or Wananosaurus is C. Oh, it's but, not like the longest ever. It's just out of these three. Out of the three, the yeah, question. yeah. Ah, right. Well, T-Rexes were pretty big. Should we go with that? Go on. I've never heard of the other two. Yeah, we'll say T-Rex. Oh. Unfortunately, the answer was A, Argentinosaurus, which oh. is this giant dinosaur that was up to around 40 metres long, which is absolutely huge. There's even some controversy about whether it's the biggest of all time. So... Very tricky one. Well done. A fun fact for you. Uh, according to Wikipedia, one nanosaurus was 60 centimetres long. Yeah, so one, one was a trick. It's pretty cute. Um, right, team two. Your last question in this round contains a musical clue. So, apart from the drums, what instruments is the loudest in a traditional orchestra? Here's your clue for this instrument. <laughs> I presume um, it's not it's not the seagull. Eleanor, are you are you somewhere particularly exotic? It's on the coast of Scotland, so yeah, it's pretty exotic. Um sorry. <laughs> We're gonna need an answer. Okay, so it's gonna be a brass instrument. I thought it would be trombone, but that's that was a trumpet, not a trombone. Trumpet? Oh, no. Oh, no. It, you were so close. You were in touch and distance oh. of the right answer. Apparently, the trumpet often sounds the loudest during performances because it can be quite harsh. But actually, according to decibel range, 
the trombone peaks higher, followed closely by the clarinet. Well, there you go. That's right. I used to play the clarinet. Yeah. Long, long time ago. Oh, lovely. Anyway. Now then, while Phil tops up the final scores, let's have another listener question. So Chris, not Naked Scientist Chris, a different Chris, emailed in to ask about animal communication. And he said, there are several examples of great apes learning sign language. Are there any cases where two animals of the same species have used their sign language skills to talk to each other? And has there ever been a case of two different species using sign language with each other? Funnily enough, our very own animal behaviour expert, Eleanor, is just the person to ask. So this is a really great question. And there is at least one example of two non-human species communicating via sign language. So this particular case comes from a chimpanzee called Washu, who was trained by researchers to be able to communicate via sign language. What the researchers then found was that when the chimpanzee had her own baby, she then proceeded to teach the baby how to also communicate via sign language. As for the the second question about whether there's been two different species which have been seen communicating via sign language, other than humans um, communicating with different types of primate, I don't know of any examples of when this has happened. What is, however, so much more impressive than um, two animals communicating via a shared language is the amazing diversity in nature that we see of different ways in which animals can communicate despite having no shared language. So a really lovely classic example of this is honey guides. So these are amazing little birds which have been known to show humans and other animals where to find um, sources of wild honey, despite not sharing a language. But even more impressive than that, um, in my opinion, one of my favourite examples of this, is the relationship between the rest-breasted nuthatch and chickadees. So chickadees are these incredible birds who have an immense ability to be able to encode very, very detailed information in their alarm calls. So within one alarm call, they can indicate what the type of predator it is or, or how big the predator is. And the really amazing thing is, despite the fact that um, nuthatches and chickadees are not very closely related, nuthatches are able to listen in on these calls and understand in detail exactly the threats which the chickadees are describing and be able to respond in an appropriate way, which I think is just an incredible piece of evidence showing how two animals of very different species um, can understand each other's calls despite not having a shared language. These are just the species that we have studied. There's probably many other incredible examples of species communicating without a shared language that we just still don't know about. Thanks very much, Eleanor. We're just about to reveal the winner to our science pub quiz. On team one, just to remind you, is climate scientist Ella Gilbert and physiologist Sam Virtue. On team two, Eleanor Drinkwater, who's an animal behaviour expert, and bees and plants researcher Hamish Symington. But before that, here's another listener question that we've had in. And this one is from Zaid on our forum, who says... 
Why does a useless organ such as the appendix that can get infected and be potentially dangerous exist in the human body at all? How does it fit in the evolution of our species? And is it possible that humans in the future will evolve to not have an appendix? Sam, this question is right up your street, so here's the answer that you prepared for us earlier. The idea that the appendix is something we no longer need really comes from arguably the greatest evolutionary biologist of all time, Charles Darwin, uh, and dates back about 150 years. And so what Charles Darwin suggested was as we evolved as organisms from ones eating predominantly grass or leaves um, to being able to eat more palatable food, we ceased to need a large cecum. Now, the cecum is a part of the gut which is really quite big in organisms like koalas, which eat eucalyptus leaves, or horses that eat grass. And it's a location where the grass or the leaves can be broken down by bacteria, sort of a fermentation-like process, to turn it into nutrients that our body can absorb. As we evolved uh, as primates um, into apes and humans, we no longer ate things like grass, so we didn't need this capacity to essentially ferment them into usable food, and our cecum shrank and just left behind a little pouch of cecum and this vestigial appendix. And really up until about 20 years ago, that was the view, that essentially the appendix was something that was an evolutionary relic. However, more recently, a lot of people have got interested in our gut microbiota. So the gut microbiota are all the bacteria that live with us. There are 10 trillion of our own cells containing our own DNA in our body, but there are actually 100 trillion bacteria that live inside us, inside our guts, uh, and come along with us. And these bacteria are good for us on the whole. If they're healthy, they do things like help us to make vitamins that we need, like biotin, and they also enable us to absorb minerals, and they protect us against bad bacteria. And the idea started to be formed that the appendix might actually act as a sort of a safe house for these bacteria at times when they're under attack. So if you were to get a really nasty disease like cholera, which gives you very, very bad diarrhea, all of your gut microbiota could be washed away. And this would leave your gut free for really nasty bacteria like uh, Clostridium difficile, this is a bacteria that causes colitis and can even be fatal in people, to move in. But when at times when we have diseases like cholera where a large amount of our gut's um, contents have been washed away and with them are bacteria, the appendix acts as a place where our own resident bacteria can hide and stay safe until after or the cholera outbreak has passed, and then they can re-enter our guts and repopulate them and then give us back our nice, healthy bacteria that we like to live with. In support of the importance of the appendix for having a function, recent research has suggested far from it being evolved away, the appendix in animals may have evolved as many as 30 different times independently. And if something's being evolved 30 different times independently, it suggests it's pretty important. So I think it's probably unlikely humans will evolve to not have an appendix, but you pretty much can't rule anything out. Thank you, Sam. Right, Phil. The time's come. Oh, boy. Wait, it's time to reveal the final scores. All right. Can I get uh, Ella, Sam, Eleanor, Hamish, Katie, can I get a drum roll, please? Oh, you certainly can. <laughs> drum roll. 
Team one, seven points. Team two, four and a half points. So the winners are Team one. Hey, congratulations, Team one. Big round of applause. Well done, Team one. A valiant effort. Ella and Sam. You guys are officially the Naked Scientists Big Brains of the Month. Ella, how do you feel? Oh, it's amazing. I'd like to thank my mom and my dog. <laughs> Sam, Sam, how are you experiencing this rush? It's been emotional, but when I've slept on it and given myself time for it to sink in, then I think I'm going to feel really, really proud of myself. Okay. So, yeah, you can send good. in your speech to us via email if yeah. you like. In fact, just, just to celebrate. All right. <laughs> now, well done, runners-up. Do you feel robbed of victory or was it a valiant defeat? What do you reckon? Oh, I think it was a valiant defeat. Well, this makes us the, the small brains of, of, of the month, which is quite exciting because invertebrates have all sorts of amazing behaviours despite having very small brains, so I'm chuffed to bits with that. Ah, yeah, I see. That. Was, that, was that purposeful, <laughs> just so you could get in an extra fun fact about invertebrates? <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> Hamish, what are your thoughts? Uh, likewise, I, I am very happy to be a small brain. I think I probably only knew the answer, could have got the answer to two more of those. So even if I had performed on uh, on top form, I think uh, we still would have uh, conked out. So uh, well done to the other two. I, I should also point out that I was I was going for inside information on Sam because we did our undergraduate degrees together in about twenty years ago, and this oh, is the no, first time no we have no met kidding. since then. Ah, okay. Oh, what a lovely reunion. Yeah, yeah very it's nice. very nice to see Sam, and um, he, he was always better than me anyway. We're going to have to have a rematch, I think, at some point. Very happy. What do you yeah. reckon? Yeah? Oh, wow, that's fighting talk. We could maybe, me and Hamish could be on the same team and we could have, like, the class of 99 or whatever we were back then, Hamish. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Something like that, definitely. Gloves off. <laughs> hey, none of that. I was worried it was going to be a bit of a hard quiz. What yeah, did you reckon? It was definitely felt, you know, approaching university challenge levels. <laughs> and I thought these two teams did an incredible job, both of them. Thank you so much. I hope everyone had as much fun as we did giggling here in the studio. And unfortunately, despite how fun it was, we must leave it there. Thank you very much to our contestants for being excellent sports. That's climate scientist Ella Gilbert, animal behaviour scientist Eleanor Drinkwater, pollinators and plants scientist Hamish Symington, and physiologist Sam Virtue. And thanks to you for listening and playing along at home. Katie and Eva put the show together. Do join us next week when we'll be marking the 75th anniversary of VE Day by taking a look at the scientific legacy of World War II. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is sponsored by Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.